Thank you, worship team, Carmelo and worship team, and Rana for preaching quite a lot of sermon already. I rejoice when that happens because I think, actually, I'm not off, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I haven't gone wide of the mark then, have I? You know, the Holy Spirit has got me tuned up here, so thank God for that. Let's, let's take a moment to just, ah, Lord, we're here, Lord, for you. Well, what matters in these next minutes is not how well I prepared and studied or prayed, but how well we grasp, hear, and respond to the word that we're looking at today, your holy word, the scriptures, and how the Holy Spirit speaks to us through them and in them and brings us to closer connection with you, greater devotion to Jesus, cleaner obedience. Holy Spirit, help us now to be focused on Christ Jesus as we consider Scripture together. Amen. 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 I have to tell you, we won't be finished at 12 today. So, hold on there. Oh, yes, I need to go forward. Again. That one. That's my theme today, sons of God. Now, when Scripture speaks about being sons, it is gender-inclusive. When Scripture is gender-specific, and it's talking about male and female role, we need to pay attention and accept what it teaches. But, but otherwise, it speaks to all of us, male and female. Sisters, I want to tell you this, that the Scriptures are written during a time when male inheritance was the prevailing culture. It was rare for a woman to be an heir, to inherit. But you are included, ladies, sisters, in every word of Scripture that speaks about children of God and sons of God. So I'm not going to be adding and daughters all the time because God doesn't make a difference. God doesn't make that differentiation. In terms of salvation and redemption and eternal inheritance, there is no male and female. We are sons of God. Now our English versions don't always serve us so well. The words child or children in the New Testament can mean at least five different Greek words. One meaning baby, one meaning without speech, like a toddler, child, youth, or son. And there are, in fact, dozens of New Testament scriptures that could read son and sons rather than child and children. Then there's a strange idea that comes around like God's the father of everybody. Really? Now, I understand where that problem came from. When, when the prevailing Christian religion was a state religion, if you were in Italy, you were a Catholic, therefore you were a Christian. If you are in Germany or Scandinavia, you are a Lutheran, therefore you are a Christian. And many, many, many decades ago, if you are in England, you are an Anglican, and therefore counted as a Christian. So people thought, well, we're all children of God. But that's not what the Bible says. The children of God are those who become children of God through faith in Jesus. They are born of God, born of the Spirit, born from above. They are adopted into, into God's family. There's a huge difference between a child of God and a child of the world. In fact, the scriptures put it even blunter than that, a child of the devil. Huge difference. The New Testament repeatedly emphasizes we become children of God through faith in Jesus by being born of God. And sons of God is an even stronger statement than children of God, because you can be a child, you can be a kitty. Oh, look at him, he's sweet. But a son is being marked out as an heir. 
There's a, there's a view to maturity, to responsibility. We're going to entrust the heir with everything. So there's a, the son is like a big, big deal. So today I want to read through Romans 8 with you. Oh, this is where my heart was going, beating. My aim is to encourage you, to anchor your assurance, to confirm your confidence, so that when we get to the last verse of, of, of this chapter, you'll join with Paul in saying, I am convinced. I am persuaded. Now, of course, Romans 8 isn't the start of the letter, so let me give you some headlines. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says the gospel is the power of God towards everyone who believes. In other words, when the gospel message is declared, God is at work by his authority, his power, to find and rescue people and create saving faith in them. That's what he's doing. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul talks about the righteous wrath of God against sinful humanity. The history of mankind is not one of ascent, but descent. We were made in the image and for the glory of God. But we've turned to practicing God denial, idolatry, and every kind of wickedness, including sexual deviancy. And so in chapter 3, four times we get this message. Three, four different ways. Paul raids Old Testament scriptures and puts together this, 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 this challenge to human nature. We might think we're not so bad. This is how God, what God says. No one is righteous, not even one. Get it? Yes. No one understands. No matter how clever they are, no matter how well read they are, no one understands the real deal. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. If that is true, and it is true, that means that we're wasting our time comparing ourselves with other people. Because this is the only verdict that matters. How are we going to escape that one? Well, here's the thing. God seeks and finds us. God sought Adam when he was hiding from God in the garden. He sought out Abraham. He appeared to Jacob. He found Moses in the desert. He found Gideon and Saul and David. And the story is the same for any number of the prophets for whom we have some background given. Jesus came to continue that mission of God. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come for good people who were doing okay, but they needed a bit of faith, which would just finish them off. He came to seek and save really lost people. The ones with no hope, no understanding. They weren't seeking God. They didn't have a clue, but he saves them. That's his rescue. From later in chapter 3 into 4, Paul sets out the huge problem of sin. Which, which, the answer to the problem of sin, which is that God is not going to justify us on the basis of how well we can do, but on the basis of putting to our credit the righteousness, the rightness of someone else. Who's that? Jesus, Jesus his son. He's going to credit us with his righteousness. And Abraham was the first example of someone who trusted God and God justified him. So we come to chapter 5, which starts in this way. The reason we're going to 5 is because 8 picks up on, on this. Therefore we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Isn't it nice to just stand sometimes and be just still? We stand in the grace of God. 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope and glory will come back to you. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance or endurance and that produces character and that produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. From this point onwards, through to the end of chapter 8, this is the thread that Paul is weaving. We as Christians approach suffering with assurance and hope of future glory. We deal with the difficult stuff which Ryan was talking about earlier because of what we have in the future. What we have now is good, but what we have in the future is like, wow. So then there's, there's some things that Paul works through on the way to chapter 8. Christ sacrificed the ungodly. Jesus just can't stand in our place. He took our sin from us so that his righteousness could be counted to us. We are dead in Adam but made alive in Christ. We are dead to sin but alive to God. The wage of sin is death but we're released from, from that penalty. And we're even released from the, the law which condemned us. It measured righteousness and therefore measured sin. And we, if you try to just live by keeping the law, you'll never do it. You're incapable of keeping God's moral law. So we're set free from law to stand in grace. Not living under the law but living by the grace of God. But then we come to Romans 8. And Romans 8 really says this to us. Finishing off from Romans 5 and so on. The sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit, not ruled by either the law or fallen human nature. They're ruled by the Holy Spirit. They're led by Him. Here we go. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'm just going to read this through. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the flesh, which is human nature, God sent, did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man and for sin. He thus condemned sin in humanity, in flesh so that the righteous stand of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, you're no longer following your, your, your basic human nature, which is, which is corrupt. You're not, you're not trying to keep the law by ticking boxes. You're being helped by the Spirit to actually meet God's moral standards. You fulfill them because you're being led by the Spirit to fulfill them. Those who live according to the flesh see their minds on the things, set their minds, sorry, on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the thing of the Spirit. Notice capital S's, please. This is not your Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We learned that in Romans 7, which we didn't go to. No those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the flesh, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, which is the same as saying the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body's dead because of sin. It, it's it's going to go, right? It's, it's finished sometime. But your, your spirit, and this is one of the few times it talks about your spirit, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
The Spirit will always lead us in accordance with the Word of God, in agreement with God's Word, to respect and obey His Word. For the Spirit Himself inspired these Scriptures. He will never contradict or set aside Scripture. Alright? But then we come to this first. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Now I've heard that preach as a promise of healing. That's not what it's about. Right? God bless you seeking God for healing. God's a healing God. This verse is about this. Resurrection. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, one day, even if you're dead and your body's corrupted in the soil, you will be raised to new life Amen. on the last day. Then it says this, that we are heirs with Christ. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Not just die physically, but spiritually too. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, count them as dead, alive in Christ, dead to sin, you will live. Then there's this fantastic verse. If Romans 3 is like breathtakingly bad news, this is breathtakingly good news. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We Christians are in a fight against the world, the flesh and the devil. But we don't fight that just by denying our fallen nature and trying to keep God's law and telling the devil where to go. We're led and helped by the Spirit. We have a new authority. We have a new energy. We have a new impetus in life. Being led by the Spirit. Then Paul focuses on this sonship. You did not receive a spirit of slavery that returns you to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship by which, by whom we cry, sorry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies again with our spirit. It's the only second time it talks about your spirit. That we are God's children. That Abba, remarkable word. Uh, sorry, and if we are children, we're heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Who inherits everything from the Father? Jesus does. All things. Everything. Everything in heaven and earth. Everything in the cosmos belongs to Jesus. What does this verse say? We are in and with him. We get it too. I didn't look up. You done blessed be the other meek? But I was away? Okay. Alright. Well, I'm not trying to preach a sermon for you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We get it. All of it. In Jesus. With Jesus. We get the whole world. In fact, we get the heavens and the earth. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You see, we don't just go to where Jesus is. We follow him there. We follow the same journey. We're enduring the same things because we're following our master. Come back to more in a minute. I want to talk about the word Abba. Abba is not a Hebrew word, it's Aramaic, the language that Jewish people adopted during their years of exile. 
but it's what Jewish children in the time of Jesus would call their dad and it's more like daddy or pop than father you know, Peter that's the Greek word by the way but it's how the Lord Jesus prayed in Gethsemane which really moves me so Lord I haven't got time to stop and blow here in Gethsemane Jesus said prayed three times the same sort of prayer yeah three times Abba Father he said Daddy all things are possible for you take this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will that cry of Abba came from the very depth of Jesus he was in a huge struggle he was sweating drops of blood in the greatest trial until that moment in time another one was coming the next day on the cross Jesus cries out Abba hear me our cry of Abba comes from the witness of the spirit within us that we are the children the sons of God the parallel passages in Galatians because you are sons God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying out Abba father so you're no longer a slave but a son and since you are a son you are also an heir through God a son son is an heir he inherits from his father male and female we are heirs of God co-heirs with Christ the Son of God we're heirs of the kingdom of God of a renewed heaven and earth and of the eternal presence and love and glory of God and the spirit cries out within us even now Abba father but there is a journey between here and there between now and then and there is suffering to be endured on the journey there may be moments I just you know I don't know who this is going to hit no face came to my mind when I was preparing this but I feel I need to say this it's for somebody there may be moments when we like Jesus are on our knees shedding tears and struggling to accept what is happening but if we will listen the Holy Spirit is stirring you in those very moments to still cry out Abba Father future glory next part of the chapter I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us he says the same thing in Corinthians the creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility we're talking about the fall of creation which happened because of the fall of man not by its own will because of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God Adam and Eve collectively man male and female man made in the image of God were made to rule creation did you get that fill the earth to view it take over the whole place they failed in the mission because they failed to trust God and since we rejected our role in the kingdom of God creation which is fallen as well which is why it doesn't work the way it should creation longs for the sons of God to take up that rule again 
Now, there are people who use this verse, the, the expectation of the sons of God, actually the verse before this one. There's a prophetic trope that's been around for a good while that's based on a misunderstanding and misuse of Romans 8.21. It claims there will come a time when the sons of God are made manifest in this age, when they take over the authorities, the levers of power, and the nations will be Christianized. It's what's called a post-millennial view of the coming of Jesus, that he comes at the end of a golden period when the church has been running the world. I, of course, do not accept that view. What Romans 8 actually is saying is that when the sons of God come to share in their father's glory, at the end of the age, creation gets to be released from its ages-long bondage as well. And creation is longing that the children of God, the sons of God, to come to their inheritance so it gets its freedom too. Here's a quote from just one book, Christopher Ash on preaching Romans which I, di I didn't follow all his notes, but anyway, this is good. Paul's point is that the glory we anticipate is a very big thing. It's the restoration of the universe under redeemed humanity in Christ. It's much bigger than a collection of individuals in heaven. Present suffering is terrible, but it's outweighed by this cosmic vision of glory to come. You know, we... We talked a lot when, when I was a kid. All I thought about, all I heard about was going to heaven when you die. Well, heaven's a wonderful place, but it's only the resting place until, until the resurrection of the dead. And then the saints come with Christ and get resurrection bodies. And if you happen to be one of those really extraordinary, fortunate people who are alive when Jesus comes, you don't even get to die. You get transformed. <laughs> but you've got to, they go first, okay? Paul says, that's they get resurrection first and then you get yours. You think you're so good being there for the last day? Mm, second in the queue. We know, Romans 8, 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until this present time. Maybe that's what earthquakes and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, earthquakes and eruptions and tidal waves and things. Is, it's about groaning and childbirth pains. Not only that, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly. Now, and this is not telling you to be a grumpy old so-and-so. It's saying there's, there's a longing in here that is unearthly. It's otherworldly. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons. The redemption of our bodies. Against, again, this is Resurrection. And if you begin to get, really get older, you begin to realize your body is failing you. Resurrection seems like a really good thing. <laughs> For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen isn't hope at all. If you've got it, you've got it. But you're, you haven't got it. You're hoping. Your view is ahead of now. Who hopes for what he can already see? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, here's some, here's some more gobstoppingly good news. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to to the will of God. Three things groan. Creation groans for its release from its bondage. 
Therefore, for the revealing of the sons of God. Christians groan for our inheritance to be without sinful nature, to be not in a decaying body, to be in a resurrected body, glorified in the presence of God. And the spirit groans and makes intercession. Now here's the thing. Further on, we'll look at the Lord Jesus is our intercessor in heaven. But here the intercessor is on earth and it's the spirit. He prays in us and through us and with us. I want you to get this. Let me put it this way. God prays to God. The Holy Spirit helps us and even prays for us to the Father. Jesus prays to the Father. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a couple of verses there. Jesus prays to the Father for us. How big is the thing that God is doing in you for us? God prays to God about it. All the time. This is not it, is it? What we have now. I know, you, I know you've got a nice home, you've got a nice car, but this isn't it. Come on. It's not the real deal. It's not what we have ahead. There will be a time when the groaning and suffering are over, when we will see the face of God, when we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Jesus said. The sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with that glorious inheritance. We wait for our adoption of sons. Now, let me explain adoption to you. You see, adoption, and I've read people write books, I've seen people write books on adoption. And they, they say, of course, you, adoption works like this. You go to the nursery, you go to the children's home, and you bring home a child or a baby, and you've adopted him. Oh, he's like, I was adopted, and therefore... I wasn't, actually. I'm talking about somebody else. They think, you missed the point. That's not biblical adoption. Biblical adoption is like this. Abraham feared he wouldn't have a son, an heir, and therefore his servant, Eliezer of Damascus, would be his heir. He'd have to adopt him as his heir. And in Greek and Roman societies, childless or, or those men without sons often ad adopted a younger man to be their heir. And adoption in scripture is all about this heirship. You've been chosen to be the heir. A co-heir with Christ. It's nothing to do with babies. All right? Only resurrected and remade people get to hear this. The king will say to those who write, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we come to the closing verses. Can I do this in ten minutes? I should think so. We all know these verses. You can get a t-shirt with some of them on. We think we know them. Well, let, I, I pray that we'll, we will view them and understand them and then really believe them, all right? God works in all things for our good. That's good. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that they would be, he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, by the way, brothers is inclusive, don't, don't, yeah, got it? Those he predestined, he also called, he also called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. There's a 
directly parallel passage in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every blessed spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You could read that as blessing of the capital S, Spirit in the heavenly realms. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his presence. This is where verse 5 should start. In love he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which is freely bestowed us Freely given us, sorry, I'm quoting the King James from all that habit. Given us in the beloved one. The children of God are those he chose, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Called according to his purpose, chosen. Chosen is not foreseen that God foresaw what you would do, some decision you would make. It's chose. He chose us in him. It's elect. It's God's choice. And later on in Romans, Paul God talks about God's choice again. And predestined, you know, when people get fussed about the word predestined, nowhere when the Bible talks about predestined does heaven and hell come next to it. It's not a binary decision of heaven or hell, predestination. Predestined is always about this. You've been chosen to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Marked out for that purpose. Your purpose is to become more like him. That's what you're marked out for. That's why you were chosen. And we're called, not just invited, but made alive. His word came to us and made us alive. I, I, it's a story, but you know, I was converted pretty much against my will. God overthrew me and overcame me. All right. <laughs> Justified is what Paul's been writing about in early chapters. It's not just God declaring us not guilty, but he gives us a new nature. He's working in us to transform us. We're being led and shaped by the Spirit. But then glorified. But glorified here is in the past tense. So I think, well, yes, I've been chosen and predestined and called. And yes, I have been justified. And I'm still, that's still a process. But I'm a long way from being glorified. But whose viewpoint is this? God's. God's. Because in his sovereign view of things, the end is already accomplished in himself it's as good as done these are the things that we need to hold on to for hope for hope's sake even now we're being conformed to the image of his son growth and change renewal are a continuing process and this is our primary purpose this is why what he made us for what Jesus died and rose again for that we are remade into the image of God which is Jesus we have a model we don't say, well, how would it have turned if it hadn't sinned? What would the image of God have looked like? Well, we don't need to try and figure that out. We see it in Jesus. The image of God in one man. We may at times in this life be parents, pastors, preachers, pharmacists, professors, politicians, but that is not what we were made for. We were made to bear the image of God. That's our primary purpose. To know him, to become more like him. When the family's left home, when the career is over, that remains our purpose. To be an image bearer. It's our purpose until we draw our last breath on planet Earth. Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers. Now, let me get on. Paul kind of wraps this up with four questions. They're rhetorical questions. He throws them at you and you're supposed to come with an answer, right? Four questions. All right, question number one. What then shall we say in response to these things? 
The answer is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? What should we say then? Let's say it. If God is for us, who can be against us? We can, they can try, but it's pretty stupid. They can form a line and queue up. But you know what? It's lunacy to think you can overthrow or, overfront, overthrow or overcome the God of heaven and earth. You're going to defeat him. To beat us, you've got to beat him. And have a try. <laughs> the phrase, did not spare his own son, takes us right back to Genesis 22. And Abraham was called by God to offer up Isaac. Three times in that chapter, the Lord says to Abraham, your son, your only son. And God had Abraham act out symbolically and prophetically what he would put his son to on that same hillside centuries later, but without any last-minute reprieve. Jesus stayed the Lamb of God until he'd finished dying as the Lamb of God. Having given his only begotten son for us, what good thing will God withhold from us? Well, he'll withhold the things that you think are good, but he doesn't. But if it's good, he won't withhold it. Second question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to criticize us? Who's going to accuse us? Of course they're going to. But what's the answer? Come on, let's say it together. It is God who justifies. If God calls you not guilty, what are you? Not guilty. Good. But you're not just not guilty, you are justified. You're positively credited with all the rightness, the righteousness of Jesus. You could not have a higher standing in God's opinion than being in his son. God justifies. Whatever anyone says against us, it's God's declaration over us that stands. Now I know some of you will love this scripture. often heard it. Quoted Isaiah 54 verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. Come on then, keep saving me. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Now, some pastors misuse that, so you can't criticize me because I'm the servant of the Lord. Shame on them! You are all the servants of the Lord. This is your heritage. And part of that heritage is this. When people falsely accuse you or criticize you, guess who's on their case? Jesus. He is. He will vindicate you, and if they don't repent, he'll call them to account. That's our vindication. Where are we? Third question. Who is there to condemn us? For Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. Oh, what shockingly good news that is. Who is there to condemn us? Let's, give, let's read this answer this way. Christ Jesus died for us, rose again for us, lives, reigns and prays for us. Amen. He has an ongoing ministry in heaven, unseen to us. 
The Spirit intercedes for us with deep groanings. Now Paul reminds us that our Lord and Master in heaven is interceding for us. You might fear that you fail fail and fall, that some trial may find your faith too small. But Jesus is praying for you. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Jesus says to you, I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail. He's able to save completely those who drew near to God through him. Since Jesus, he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7. Hebrews is a wonderful passage about this intercession of Jesus in the heavens. God the Spirit prays to God the Father for us. God the Son prays to God the Father for us. One old hymn says, Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written in his hands. Fourth question, we're almost there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's it's a long question. Shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword is written for your sake. We face death all all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. We're like in the queue at the abattoir. (coughs) Next one. God's purpose is to have many sons in the image of his son, his son, Jesus. It's what he chose and predestined us for. He works all things together for that greatest good. But look at the list of all things there. Trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Paul endured all those things, or not all of those things in one time. But most of those things he lists in 2 Corinthians 11, talking about his trials, his persecutions, his beaches, his dangers that he'd been endured. And his life was ended by a Roman sword because he was a Roman citizen. You couldn't kill a Roman citizen any other way. That sword did not sever him from Christ. It sent him to Christ. In Acts we read that Paul and Barnabas travelled back to Antioch telling all the churches along the way, we must endure many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. That word there is slipsis, which is elsewhere translated tribulation. Now, if we had visiting preachers coming, you know, and church after church through Harlow and Essex, they were preaching the one message every Sunday morning, we must through much tribulation inherit the kingdom of God. We think, oh my goodness, is that what they've got to say? But you see, we need to be hardened up. We need to be toughened up and stop thinking we're going to have it easy. We've got to be prepared for the difficulties. Peter Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What's the answer to the question? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I should have put it in that one. Anyway, Scripture says in all these things. We might prefer... To have from these things. But that's not what scripture says. In all these things. God is working for our good in all things. Even the tough times. Then it says we're more than conquerors. That's an interesting Greek word. It doesn't appear anywhere else. Hooper Nikeo. From Hooper we get hyper. You know. By the way we still haven't invented a hyper arrive. It's still science fiction. But if you've been to a supermarket. But have you been to a hypermarket? I mean, even the trolleys are, you know. Paul is saying we're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors, we're hyper-conquerors. Why is that? Next verse, or part of it, says, through him loved us. You see, we're conquerors not by conquering. 
but by following our conqueror. He's already been there. We don't, we, don't, we don't gain a victory. We follow him in his victory. He's already been through this. He's going to take us through it. He'll bring us through the other side. We walk in his triumph. We're not making, we're not fighting our way to victory. We're following the victorious one. Following him, walking behind him. Walking in his shadow, we might say. But we need to understand overcoming. Because broadly speaking, in most of the scriptures that talk about overcoming, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in Revelation about telling them to overcome. Paul, uh, John says in his letter that what, we, what, what overcomes the world is our faith. We don't overcome so much by escaping as by enduring. Going through with the grace of God. We overcome by simply trusting, seeking, obeying, and following Jesus. It's more about submission, trust, and obedience than having a fist fight. Jesus overcame at Gethsemane. Didn't look like it, but he did. He overcame at Golgotha. Again, didn't look like it. Natural thinking, but he did. What seems like us being beaten up in the eyes of the world is actually our overcoming. Enduring because... We know we are loved by Christ. So, here we go. Finish. Are you convinced? Are you persuaded? Yes. For I am convinced um, that neither death, nor life, come on, say it, nor angels, nor principalities, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's nothing and no one in all creation, in all the cosmos, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to Ron got ahead of me on this one earlier as well because this is the way I wrote it only if you can remove the Lord Jesus from his throne in heaven can you remove one of his true flock from his hands we are inseparable from him he holds us so if you're convinced of these things you acknowledge that you're not a Christian because you made a good choice for yourself the Lord shows you and he sets you on his purpose of being remade in the image of God, which is found in Jesus. He works all things together for that good purpose, even sufferings and troubles. Trust the Lord, trust his word, trust his power and his promises. Depend upon his continuing love and faithfulness. Will he fail? No! He won't. Thank you for that song too. When you endure all things in hope and assurance, you're walking as Jesus walked. You're overcoming as he did. And you're doing so because he's already accomplished it for you. Peter did write to the Philippians that he was confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion and to the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I commend your dear children here today to your word, which is able to build them up and give them inheritance amongst the saints. And Lord, you, you don't want us to just scrape into heaven by the skin of our teeth, as some people say. You want us to be on that day, be those who are being welcomed, who are being told they did well. And that's not according to the measure of ability you gave us, but to the measure of faithfulness with which we served and followed you. 
So I pray that these, tru these truths may find real deep roots in our hearts. Because we do have to deal with life. And life sometimes is pretty messy. But we thank you that you have overcome. And you in us are the overcomer. Thank you, Lord Jesus. A blessing from Jude for you. And we'll pray up, sing our last song. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you unblemished in his glorious presence with great joy. To the only, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time and now and for all eternity. Amen. Amen. Amen.